Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to this episode of Cracking Addiction. And we've got with us today Dr. Manu Bhatnagar. Uh, Manu, I believe that we're going to talk today about psychosis. What is psychosis? Well, I think we'll end up having more debate about what is psychosis than we began. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the context of the word, I think it's important to simplify it as a disturbance in thought, perception, or cognition, um, and often all together. And psychosis is a symptom rather than an illness by itself. And I think there are many permutations and expressions of psychosis because they're founded upon one's individual past experiences. So your previous Mm -hmm. traumas and your previous experiences based in reality in a psychotic experience can be compounded for perceptual disturbances of visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, um, thought disturbances, which is delusions, paranoia, and alterations of cognition, which is often a distorted perception of reality as it goes to what's happened to Mm -hmm. you in the past and maybe real-life events that haven't yet happened. So that constellation of symptoms can be very different from each individual, and you might have all of those experiences, you might have just one, and it might be really imperceptible to someone else or it might be pretty bloody obvious to someone psychotic. Um, But I think something to understand is that it can happen in the context of substance use and be very short-lived, or it can be something that people experience for the rest of their life as well. So there's a lot in there, and I really like your summary of of the diagnosis of psychosis, uh, you know, this disorder of perception, thought, and cognition. And I also like the fact that you you say that it, it can be due to a range of other conditions, and it in and of itself is not actually a disease or a diagnosis. It's it's a kind of a cluster of symptoms. So it doesn't tell you. The word psychotic or psychosis doesn't actually tell you what's actually causing this disturbance of perception, thought, and cognition. So my my I suppose, you know, one of the issues that, that I've got that I frequently think about is to what extent does social social context influence the diagnosis of psychosis or cultural context? Yeah, quite a bit. And they've been Many studies, many psychiatrists have wondered this throughout time. Um, One thing to consider is current trends in society, understandable Mm -hmm. natural fears that exist in the news can be sort of kindling for the mind to be fearful and paranoid upon. For example, when televisions and radios first were invented, um, there began this huge wave of people thinking, other forces, other entities can listen to them or are in fact communicating to them. That still exists. And that idea of thought broadcasting or thought insertion, the literature would, literature would suggest is a relatively new phenomenon. There is not a lot of evidence that that existed prior to the year 1900. And I think it's quite evident that psychosis did exist before them. Um, when glass and mirrors were first in fashion in Victorian England, a lot of people had what we back then called glass delusion, where they were thought they were made of glass that would break apart if someone hurt them. Um, and then more recently, it's phenomenons like what's in the media and t- TV and film. The show Truman Show came out and um, 
to this day, you still feel people, see people have their first episode of psychosis or first experience of psychosis believing they're trapped in a TV show and everyone's an actor and they're watching them. So that's, that's also the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, quite right. And who's to say who's psychotic and who's just aware of the truth? Um, But what, what we do see in current trends of news and media and also um, fiction, definitely fodder for your brain to think that might not be too far-fetched. Mm. There's, let, let's talk about the causes, the potential causes of, of a psychosis. Talk us through your understanding of that. Yeah, uh, I think it's something that we now understand is quite varied. So there isn't often one thing that we can point to to say that's why you became psychotic. Now, this is where the terminology becomes really important and Mm. uh, there's been a lot of attempts to unify terminology of psychosis across countries and across languages as well. Um, For example, psychotic experiences can be a lot more common and may not indicate a psychotic episode. So very similar terms and can be interchanged but mean very different things. So, for example, if someone were to inject methamphetamines, they would be Mm. about 60 to 70% likely to have some sort of psychotic experience while they're intoxicated. And that Mm. could be as mild as paranoia, um, but it could be as severe as perceptual disturbances and um, poor reality testing. But generally what we expect is when the intoxication wears off, so does the psychotic experience. Um, So in that case, the substance was clearly the causative agent for the psychotic experience. But if that psychosis lasts beyond the intoxication, the expected time in which the substance is running its course, um, we call that a psychotic episode. And that could be anywhere from a few days to a few months. Um, Those psychotic experiences may vary across that time period, but that absence of reality testing and some sort of vague paranoia or disturbance in perception exists. And that's when we start to think, is this more than just a substance? And is the substance something that has precipitated or triggered the psychotic episode? The cause for why that happens to some people and not others is quite varied. And that's what we would term a first episode psychosis. Um, the idea is that Psychotic episodes represent um, maybe a vulnerability to developing psychosis that could be genetic and environmental, um, and it could also be a long-term consequence of chronic substance use um, in a way through neuroplasticity. Recurrent use of methamphetamines or cannabis, for example, can be shown to cause sort of something like a static picture of psychosis if you have multiple episodes of it. But Sometimes it's helpful to think about a psychotic episode or a first episode of psychosis as a cup. So if you can imagine a coffee cup in front of you, um, it's empty when we're born. But if you have a genetic predisposition to psychosis, for example, if you have a first degree relative, a parent or a sibling who's had schizophrenia, um, you could be anywhere from 6 to 12% likely to have schizophrenia yourself. So mm-hmm. if you do have a first degree relative, you're inherently born with a cup that's a little bit full already. Then the environmental influences 
put more into that cup. For example, we've got really good evidence now that the earlier you start smoking cannabis and the higher the quantity, the more likely that cup is to become full. Reactions to stress, high expressed emotion in the family. So EE, high EE expressed emotion is a term used to describe a family environment where everyone kind of just says what's on their mind and there's a lot of stress and chaos within the family unit. And that expressed emotion has been linked to a vulnerability to developing psychosis as well as other mental health conditions. Um, there are even some really interesting studies that have been done in the past where may not be relevant day to day, but some studies have pointed to the fact that if you're born in the Northern Hemisphere in winter, that is also somewhat of a link that makes you vulnerable to developing schizophrenia or a psychotic episode later in life. So a lot of these things we can't control, genetics and what time of year you're born are completely out of your control, but others you can. And so that's where we break it up to the static and dynamic risk factors of developing psychosis. Ultimately, if you have enough in that cup and it overflows, that's what we think is the first episode psychosis. And that's where all of these risk factors have compounded and gone out of hand to make that vulnerability exposed. But just as, just as if that cup overflows, we can do a lot of things to prevent it from happening. Um, if you know you have a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia, then you're more likely going to have a psychotic episode and a first episode psychosis. Probably staying away from substances is uh, the best way to limit how much is in that cup. Um, adaptive mechanisms with stress and stressful environments are really beneficial. Lifestyle modification is really, really important. Um, and just as we can prevent it, once someone has had a first episode of psychosis, all those factors are relevant in discussing prognosis and limiting relapse rates when someone is diagnosed with first episode of psychosis. You're an addiction psychiatrist and your special interest is um, you know, dealing with the effect that drugs have on mental health. So let's, let's try to hone in on the, the, the specific issue around the drugs that actually can cause psychosis. So what, what, what specifically what drugs do you think are, are implicated in, as you say, those dynamic uh, non-static risk factors for the development of first episode psychosis? I think, I think the most prevalent and potent one that we're finding is stimulants. Um, so that mm -hmm. would be methamphetamine. Um, mm -hmm. Injecting, like I mentioned, that experience of psychosis is so high mm. when someone injects mm. um, a reasonable quantity of methamphetamine that it's bound to yeah. flip a switch if you're genetically vulnerable. The one that's been studied the most is probably cannabis though. And I know cannabis mm -hmm. is um, firstly a lot more prevalent, a lot more um, accepted, uh, even used for medicinal purposes. And that's not without merits, but I think Something to keep in mind if you do have a vulnerability to psychosis or a past history of psychosis, you might not get prescribed cannabis and using cannabis off the street was probably going to cause more psychotic symptoms. Um, like I mentioned, heavy use early on in life with cannabis fills that cup in to make you more likely to have a first episode of mm. psychosis. Uh, it's, it's interesting you say that because I've also read a paper, and admittedly, you know, we can argue about the various types of evidence bases that we've got, but I have read a paper that suggested that if cannabis per se was used in the absence of any other substance, that the numbers of um, 
uh, de novo psychotic episodes that occurred in a cohort. There was I can't remember the total number of the cohort, but it was in its uh, thousands. Is actually only seven cases. So that's not to say that cannabis-induced psychosis doesn't occur, but I'm 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 I suppose I'm stirring the pot a little bit and asking you to what extent is is uh, cannabis causing the psychosis or unmasking a psychosis? Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And just putting the evidence aside, because I've heard and seen both sides of the coin here. In my mm. personal experience, it's quite rare for me to see someone having cannabis trigger a psychotic episode just in the way that mm. stimulants can do that it's more mm. that slow build up over time and a typical scenario mm. you'll see for you know if you having done a job in first episode psychosis a typical scenario for a young man you know 18 19 years old for having the first episode of psychosis is this six month period of a prodrome where mm. they're not really engaging in social activities they're very blunted in their affect and that can be for about six months and often what happens is there's this history of smoking cannabis prior to that and, mm. and it sort of creeps up. So psychotic experiences don't technically happen with high amounts of cannabis use night after night. It's that it sets off this cascade of um, psychosis developing through first through a prodrome and then through slight delusions and perceptual disturbances. And mm. I think the evidence with cannabis is less about psychotic episodes and psychotic experiences, but schizophrenia. It's really important to understand yeah. that schizophrenia is a syndrome of various symptoms. Um, mm. The Paul mark and the one that's most concerning happens to be psychosis, but you also get a myriad of what we call negative symptoms, which is um, blunting of the affect and uh, alochia and evolution. And I think all the research that suggests that you'll develop schizophrenia is likely um, because of earlier heavy smoking. But I agree with you in my clinical experience, in a in my addiction psychiatry um, career, I haven't really seen someone who's had a bad night of smoking weed and then has um, a really bad psychotic episode. Definitely nowhere near as much as um, methamphetamines or hallucinogens. So there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of key issues here that, that we need, I think, to explore. So really the difference between psychosis and schizophrenia is that psychosis, as we've already agreed, is a, is a, is a kind of a, a group of symptoms, i.e., as you've described, a, a disorder of thought, perception, and cognition. But it's also these negative symptoms and you've mentioned a number of words. Uh, you know, I think perhaps for the sake of an audience that's less uh, psychologically minded than we are, perhaps we could explore exactly what those negative symptoms might mean to the layperson. Yeah. Um, I, I remember them by the four A's. Um, mm-hmm. Which one is the fifth A? And I'm forgetting it, but the four A's that definitely happen in the prodromal phase. So sometimes people with schizophrenia have the negative symptoms before they start to have psychotic experiences. Um, yeah. And it can be really difficult to tell, but the five, the four A's are blunting of an affect. So blunting of affect means that the person who's experiencing these symptoms, if they hear a funny joke, they will understand that it's funny, but on the outside you won't see them laughing. And so yeah. their expression of emotion is blunted. It's not meeting... Mm halfway between your expectation and their expression. Um, Alogia is a lack of word production. Um, So people Mm. will often find that they can't communicate their thoughts very well. Um, 
a volition or a motivation is exactly what it sounds like. So a lack of willingness to do things that would otherwise be necessary to be functional, like getting up out of bed, showering, going out of the house to see their friends. Um, let me go through it again. Blunting effect, alodia, um, evolution, asocialization. People with schizophrenia um, tend to have a lot of interpersonal difficulties. It's interesting to split hairs, but sometimes that can be because of the psychotic experiences. The paranoia and mm. um, perceptual disturbances can impair wanting to go mm. out and trust someone to talk to. Um, but there yeah. is also an inherent lack of will to do things mm. um, in social settings and like lack of yearning to socialize, which you would expect that most people would want to do. Um, and the last one is attentional deficits. So the neurocognitive effects of schizophrenia, are sometimes the most debilitating part of schizophrenia. So having an episode of psychosis where you're hearing voices and paranoid and delusional, we've sort of gotten pretty good at keeping that at bay after it happens. But the thing that we really struggle with in psychiatry is giving people that attentional um, improvement after an episode. So chronic schizophrenia is really, really difficult to um, treat fully because those negative symptoms and the attentional deficits that arise um, can be really difficult to get someone to you know, want to do the things that will functionally make them integrate back into society. Um, so those are the five so, symptoms, yeah. So really to simplify it then, we, we have to think about schizophrenia as a collection of positive symptoms which are characterized by psychosis and a, and a collection of negative symptoms which you've elucidated as the five A's and uh, you've gone through. And that's in contradistinction to something like drug-induced psychosis where you have really a, a kind of a short episode of the presence of those psychotic symptoms. But on the other hand, you know, there are other mental health conditions that, that kind of look like the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. And I was wondering, you know, for instance, depression, a good going major depressive episode, a major depressive disorder can produce a lot of those negative symptoms. So it, it, would you comment on that? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's where, the folly of cross-sectional assessment um, is something that we all get stuck in. And I think that's a typical scenario of a 20-year-old who's smoking cannabis, has had six months of these symptoms, and you could pick any one of chronic cannabis use disorder, um, major depression with severity, uh, first episode of psychosis, some other um, acquired brain injury, you know, all of these differentials are really important to keep in mind before jumping the gun and saying this is depression or this is psychosis but mm -hmm. they do share similar symptoms and also similar mm -hmm. neurocognitive underpinnings obviously the extreme end of major depression with severe symptoms is depression with psychosis um, and so mm -hmm. you know if you remain depressed enough and for long enough without treatment psychotic symptoms can develop as a part of depression um, there are some specific hallmarks of psychotic depression but I think it's really important to keep an open mind and do, an, do a thorough history first time you're seeing someone with this constellation of symptoms. Um, and also think about what prognostic factors could lead to someone to someone having 
their current presentation. For example, if they've got a genetic underpinning to schizophrenia or bipolar affective disorder, that can be a strong hint about what you're seeing in front of you now. Um, responding to antidepressant medications. You know, often people with a first episode psychosis are commonly mistaken for having a depressive episode and you just won't get any better with antidepressants or conventional treatments for depression. Um, there is a lot of grey area and I think sometimes retrospectively it's easy to say, well, that's what it was all along. Um, so that's why it's really important not just to have the medical model when someone's experiencing a relapse of depression, psychosis, um, substance use, but rather to have a, a supportive model where a longitudinal assessment can be can be formed and a psychiatrist or a medical professional can utilise that collateral information to see what the time course is. And of course, that longitudinal assessment really is, is crucial in understanding the, the different presentations between major depressive disorder and, and, and schizophrenia, for instance, where schizophrenia is characterized by this progressive, unremitting decline in function, i.e. The, you know, the accumulation of negative symptoms, whereas ep- uh, major depressive disorder is by its very nature episodic, so you, have, you get better. You might, you might relapse, but in between the two episodes, your, your function is not, uh, is not impaired. Would you care to comment on that? Yeah, definitely. You know, some people, major depressive disorder, some people are of the opinion that it could be a bipolar affective disorder just waiting mm. to have humanity. So, so, of course, bipolar affective yeah, disorder yeah, is yeah. very debilitating and you have episodes, long, severe episodes of depression, but the hallmark of bipolar affective disorder, you also have a manic episode. The lows of bipolar are very severe and often the thing that is most debilitating. And I think there are a lot of people out there who have major depressive disorder um, and the severity of their depression is just as severe as that bipolar type Mm. picture. So really the episodicity, the, the episodicity of the mood disorders longitudinally distinguishes those mood disorders from the schizophrenia disorders. Definitely. And the inter-episodic functioning. So the goal of treating someone who has had a major depressive disorder is getting them back to working and being a parent and integrating back into society. And all the evidence that we have is if you do that well and continue preventative measures, biological Mm. treatments like antidepressants, uh, psychological therapy for quite a while, adequate social support. So you can really get someone back to functioning and prevent an episode for quite some time. But with schizophrenia, we're really sort of, at the moment, capitalise preventing psychotic relapses, which means preventing the positive symptoms from having uh, a big hold on people because that can be quite Mm. debilitating and scary and that's where people often need hospital admission. But in between that, the negative symptoms still are really difficult to treat. And conventional medications for schizophrenia aren't very good at treating negative symptoms. Yeah. So again, let's let's bring in and bring in the discussion back to the concept of drug-induced psychosis. So, you know, we, we've agreed that methamphetamine and cannabis are are the two main culprits for if the, the actual diagnosis of substance-induced psychotic disorder. Are there, are there any specific hallmarks of substance-induced psychotic disorder that you would rely on to help you distinguish that disorder from either a schizophreniform or a schizophrenia disorder, or for that matter, a brief, a brief psychotic disorder, and also the mood disorders? Because it, it's, it, it can be very confusing when you, when you see a patient for the first time presenting with psychosis, especially in the context of addiction. 
Yeah, definitely. And uh, look, I think uh, the amount of substances one has used prior to having that first episode of psychosis, um, and also the the you know the physical health at the time that they're experiencing that is really relevant as well. Um, what I commonly see, especially with stimulant medication, is a psychosis has this component of psychomotor agitation that sometimes you don't see with an episode of psychosis where schizophrenia is the underlying cause. And what I mean by psychomotor agitation is this um, intense drive to act upon the psychosis. And, you know, looking at someone from the edge of the bed, um, even if they're not saying anything and explaining their psychotic symptoms, you, you'd be able to see that they're psychomotor agitated by this internal restlessness and a need to um, communicate and act on a lot of their psychotic experiences. Um, again, it really is person-to-person dependent. Um, there is some evidence that the nature of delusions can give you a bit of an inkling about whether it's drug-induced psychosis or an underlying schizophrenia. So, for example, people with schizophrenia, their psychotic experiences can often be called systematized delusions. So it's not just mm-hmm. that people listen to my conversations and I'm a bit paranoid on edge. It's a lot more fleshed out and there's specific people mm. in a conspiracy and it goes up to the CIA and it's really, really mm. ingrained in them. Because if you do think about it, they've had a lot of time to establish this delusional network. Whereas yeah. often I see people who have had an abrupt, uh, precipitated psychotic episode, it's largely the hypervigilance and being on the lookout for threats mm. that comprises yeah. the paranoia and um, other psychotic symptoms. So it's more inchoate, less formed, less, as you say, systematized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, yeah, fleshing that out can take a while, knowing mm. what's um, uh, what's happening in the short term and what's more fleshed out and systematized is really yeah. difficult. The other thing, I suppose, is to emphasize again that the longitudinal assessment that was, is so useful in distinguishing the um, primary, sorry, the, the schizophrenia disorders from the mood disorders is also equally important in distinguishing the substance, substance-induced psychotic disorders from the schizophrenia disorders because with abstinence, you would anticipate a resolution of symptoms, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. And um, that's where it becomes really hard in the community as a GP, mm. psychiatrist, addiction specialist to say, is this schizophrenia or is this drug-induced psychosis and someone's mm using substances and you know try as we might during during drug screen trying to take a good history about how much someone's using there really is no way to ensure that substance someone's substance free um Mm. and often a a period of hospitalization or often you know some some ways that i know if it's schizophrenia or um intoxication drug-induced psychosis if someone's had an episode of incarceration if they've been in prison and still had psychotic experiences um then you kind of have a think about the diagnostic framework because obviously you assume there wouldn't be as many substances in prison and um, schizophrenia becomes a more likely explanation. But, you know, it is difficult to know. But that assumption sometimes is a dangerous one to make because it it, it sometimes (laughs) is not the case that someone uh, is is, is guaranteed to be abstinent of drugs whilst incarcerated. I'm sure we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, Manu, look, I really want to thank you for your expertise today in teasing out the, the diagnostic conundrum that is psychosis in the context of 
uh, of addiction and substance use disorder. Many thanks for your pearls of wisdom. No worries, Michael. Uh, happy to help. See you soon. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Cracking Addiction.